Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, March 20th, 2011. Uh, this is the David Weekly, and I am joined here with William Marshall. Hi there. Hey. So, Will, you work at uh, the NASA Ames Research Center, is that That's right? right. Yep. Yeah. So tell me about what you do for NASA. Well, I do all sorts of things, David, um, ranging from science to technology uh, development uh, and managing various uh, bureaucratic functions that there exist in NASA. So, but I mean, focusing on the science, what we really uh, do is a wide variety of scientific missions, um, mainly focused on low cost satellites. So what we specialize in at AIMS, so one of the things we specialize in is these really low cost satellites. And what NASA means by low cost is sort of five to $100 million. <laughs> Most satellite missions cost $500 million or a billion dollars. So you know, it doesn't sound very cheap, but relative to the big ones, it's pretty cheap. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do is do more science and more exploration for the same budget, essentially. Mm -hmm. Cool. So um, on an earlier podcast, I interviewed my roommate, Nato, yeah. who's working on a crazy low-cost project to build a uh, Pico satellite to, to sail to the moon. Um, is that stuff of interest to you as well? Or? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, uh, there are a lot of uh, efforts in the amateur community of satellite builders that I think are going really in the right direction and they're going to do lots of cool stuff. And some of it is incentivized by this Google Lunar X Prize, which is a $30 million prize to, for anyone who privately lands on the moon and sends some images back, essentially. And they also have to row 500 meters or get 500 meters from their starting point. But in any case, essentially, it's an incentive structure for amateur communities and private groups to go and try and do something to the moon, which is pretty adventurous, but I think somebody will do it. And it's uh, it's really cool that all these teams all around the world are, are trying to land on the moon as well. That's very exciting. So is NASA itself researching what's involved in doing a, quote, low cost, quote, like $5 million to $500 million launch? Or is it helping private industry do that? Or what's, what's the approach? Well, for, I should clarify that what I was talking about was the whole mission cost, that's the launch, but mainly the satellite itself. Um, launch is a separate issue in a way. We, we're mainly, mainly focusing on low-cost satellites, not low-cost launch vehicles. Um, uh, the low-cost satellites uh, are really still the dominant cost typically for, for launch, uh, I mean, uh, for, for satellite missions, um, they're even more than the launch vehicles, but launch vehicles are a really expensive component. And other people uh, pri privately and within NASA are working on really low-cost launch systems as well. Got it. Because it, it, just as a pure outsider, it sort of seems like uh, at a national level, NASA is being defunded for launch vehicles. Uh, is that an accurate assessment? Is it, oh, just private industry will take care of that. Well, there's certainly NASA's moving out of the business of trying to do human spaceflight to low Earth orbit. So, what the, the idea basically is that it seems like the private sector is ready to do uh, to to do manned missions to LEO, or they're getting very close to being able to get to that stage. And so, that's an ideal time for NASA to incentivize that, but to get out of doing that itself and concentrate on the further afield stuff like sending a human to an asteroid or sending a human further afield, which private industry is probably not going to do anytime immediately. Right. It feels like we're in this weird chasm, right, where it's like private industry is starting to look like it may plausibly in the near future be able to put humans in low Earth orbit. Uh, but the government doesn't really want to put humans on the moon because, hey, we already did that. That's so like 40 years ago, right? Um, and so Mars seems pretty sexy, but Mars is such a tremendous leap 
from the moon that um, nobody, especially in uh, with with what's going on with uh, national budgets these days, w wants to talk about realistically funding a human on Mars mission. So d does that leave us kind of stranded? Where it's like, I, I guess we're just going to kind of give up on space. Uh, uh, I, I, I think you've nailed it there, David. The uh, essential situation is, as you put it, people don't want to send back humans back to the moon because it's done it, been there, done that, and, and uh, Mars is perhaps the next target. Asteroids are also in the mix. I think more or less this is just a temporary phase, that's essentially a mistake. This is my, just my personal opinion. Um, the What we have here is, it's actually, I've been working up until recently on a really cool mission called LCROSS. This sounds like a distraction, but it's related to the point. LCROSS is a lunar mission that we slammed into the south pole of the moon looking for water. That's right. I was on the science team for that mission. And we actually found a great deal of water there in, to, to our surprise and to the surprise of a lot of planetary geologists who mainly thought that the moon was bone dry. Which speaks to the wisdom of putting a base on the moon. Absolutely. And so that was where I was going. So, in fact, um, there's so much water where we landed. It was it was really <laughs> remarkable. About 6% by mass of the regolith was, uh, was water where we impacted. If that extrapolates to the other permanently shadowed regions, um, I can go into why we, we, we probably see water there. But anyway, th if that extrapolates to the other permanently shadowed regions, which uh, uh, we would guess it probably does, although we need to go there and find out, that means there's so much water on the moon that there's certainly enough to sustain lots of people there. You know, I mean, it just very rough. Big parties on the moon. Uh, yeah, not just parties, <laughs> though. Like, millions of people could live there permanently if this number... Millions of people could live on the moon. Considerably, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I would consider millions of people could live there. I, you know, it really depends on the details of where we find this water elsewhere. We've got one sample point at the minute. Fair. So that would, it depends on some guessing of how that extrapolates. So at this point, that's really just an estimate. But I would, you know, I would hazard a guess that millions of people would be able to live on the water on the moon. That's remarkable. That says to me, so, so going back to the moon-Mars thing, I think it's essentially uh, 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 something... The facts will eventually lead us back to the moon. It just takes politics a little bit of time to figure this out. So we are, there's an overwhelming case to put a base on the moon. If you right. care about putting a base off Earth, yeah. and especially a self-sustainable base off Earth, That's which right. I think is really important, and I, right. I think is really a central part of NASA's mission for space exploration, permanent self-sustainable settlement off Earth, by far the easiest place to do that is the moon. I mean, by a long way. There used to be a bit of a doubt, like, because Mars was hard, although it was harder to get to, there was lots of resources there, and the moon was easier to get to, but where are we gonna get all those resources? Now that, that you know, latter part is moot. Right. Um, we, we, we have found lots of resources, and it's not just water, we found CO2, methane, lots of light hydrocarbons, and a variety of things that are all easily extractable. And so from the perspective of, of where's the easiest place to set up a settlement, there's no question in my mind. The, the argument's over, it is the moon. So how long do you think it's going to take uh, NASA or the federal government to, to realize this? I don't know. I, I think... Uh, uh, th there's a perpetual argument in the space uh, uh, community 
about these things and and I, I, I don't know how long it will take for for it to come to some consensus. It probably will never come to complete consensus, but I'd imagine uh, it's going to be persuaded by the general arguments fairly soon. The <laughs> Remember these papers that show the water on the moon right. and the other resources just came out in own, only just under a year ago. And so it's not like this knowledge has been in, 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 the, in the hands of space scientists or anyone for a very long time. And so it takes time. And then the politics, it's going to take even longer. I mean, I, I would imagine it's going it's gonna to take at least until the next administration. So what's, what's your out. goal in, in all of this? What, what got you into uh, working on space? Well, I, I was always interested in astronomy from, as, from the time I was a kid. I had a, I had a passion for it when I was about eight, and that continued. I built my first telescope when I was 16, and I, you know, it was obvious that I wanted to study space and astronomy and astrophysics and things. And so that's what I did, and that 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 that, that interest never ceased. I eventually, um, uh, actually, sort of purely by chance, I ended over in the states because one of my two PhD supervisors moved out to California to take a professorship. I followed him because I was working more with him at the time, and and then I bumped into at various conferences my now uh, boss, um, who 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 was then in the Air Force, um, but who later offered me a job when he went to NASA to work on lunar stuff. And uh, I was really happy to to accept. Cool, cool. So what has it been like for you uh, working as a, as a foreign national, because you're, you're a British citizen, yep. right, uh, for uh, an American government agency, right. um, particularly one that does things with, you know, rockets and space and stuff that it may be generally considered like pretty, pretty high sensitivity work. Uh, that's a very interesting question. I mean, firstly, I should clarify that I don't work for NASA. I work for a contracting company for oh. uh, at NASA. So that's oh. what happens with with a lot of the people that work at NASA. Okay. Um, so uh, it's a little bit harder if you're a U not US citizen to be working as a civil servant, i.e. for the government directly. Got it. Um, there's certain rules in place. It's possible, but it's hard, slightly harder. But in general, NASA's had a long heritage of having non-US uh, people working for it. In fact, so right from the, the rocketry program came from. <laughs> exactly, precisely. I mean, right from the get-go, it was Werner von Braun and his team <laughs> that right. were toinked from Germany <laughs> that essentially did everything up to the Saturn V and Apollo program yeah. for the US. I mean, you know, Werner von Braun was essentially involved with designing all of that and his team. Yeah. They were all Germans. That's right. And, and, so, and, and, the, and the Russians took the other half of that team. <laughs> and so, so, I mean... And and I work routinely with people from all over the planet um, today at, at, at NASA, and so it's not an unusual thing at all. Um, there are difficulties. I mean, no question. They 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 make it hard for us at some level. Um, let's say there's more forms to fill out, uh, <laughs> and they watch us more closely than they do the U.S. people. Uh, it's actually, yeah, sometimes it's a little bit sad how it's discriminatory against uh, non-US citizens. But on the other hand, you know, uh, by and large, I find America very open to these things. Um, you know, I, I don't have much experience working in other countries. So, um, you know, I don't know how it compares. But it, on the one hand, there's discrimination, and I don't agree with that at all. Uh -huh. On the other hand, um, hell, I've been able to get a cool job working yeah. on cool stuff. 
Well, I guess the, I guess the obvious question would be, you know, Europe's got the European Space Agency, so why NASA over the ESA? Yeah. Well, I did actually work uh, briefly at ESA, and uh, I, I I have no uh, particular preference one way or the other. It's just that I happened upon a very interesting, op- specific opportunity. Um, so in a general sense, I would certainly work at the European Space Agency, but it was really the specific opportunity that I was offered here at NASA aims to work on. The highly efficient space science. Yeah, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was just a more out there way of doing things. So it was more radical, more revolutionary. And so that was what I wanted to focus on. Do you think it's more radical because it's here in Silicon Valley? I th- certainly think that's related, yes. Right. So, so what, what are your impressions as a, as a Brit living in Silicon Valley? Well, I love Silicon Valley. I think it's cool that we see such a... The, 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 th- the key thing is the risk, um, risk posture to new ideas. It's that, uh, you, you know, in much of the rest of the world, in the rest of the US and, and in Europe, it's not a question of money. It's a question of whether you're willing to risk it on new ideas, right? Mm. So what I found is different in California is if you have an idea, it's like, oh, here's a million bucks now. Yeah. Have a go. <laughs> right? And in the rest of the world, it, there would be a million bucks for you. Don't worry. It will just take a year to get it through 18 different committees and so forth, right? <laughs> and, of course, NASA is a different entity uh, to Silicon Valley in general, but it feeds off this culture, this particular campus here in a. So you, you, think, you think it's a good fit then? Oh, I think it's fantastic, yeah. I mean, I, I think NASA feeds off Silicon Valley a lot, um, I think Silicon Valley sometimes feeds off NASA, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, I think, oh. I think, you know, um, I mean, actually, NASA Ames has had an intricate relationship with the founding of Silicon Valley. I mean, one of the root DNS servers is at Ames. It's, it was one of the f- first non-military facilities on the uh, ARPANET, etc. And so it's it, uh, supercomputing developments were developed there early early internet stuff i mean there's a it, there's a tremendous history actually of interconnected um projects but in any case um uh i think i think the general sentiment at aims is it's it's more it's not it, compared with the other nasa center is is it's more um, innovative, technologically more out there in terms of research. Some people call it another NASA centers and at NASA headquarters they call it the uncenter because <laughs> it doesn't seem to be under their control. Um, I think is the main point. It's doing its own radical thing, but they all recognise that it's really generating some of the best ideas that the agency has. Yes. So long term, could you see yourself uh, building up a, a full career at NASA? Do you think you're going to stay here in Silicon Valley? Like what, what's what's in the future for Will Marshall? I don't know. That's uh, a, a question I can't really answer um, in any, you know, f- very clear way. The, the, it obviously, for me, it depends on opportunities. I will go where I think I can make the biggest difference to help the world in the way I think that, you know, is an intersection between my interests and my capabilities. So you seem really passionate about making sure that a base gets built on the moon. How do you think we can best uh, advocate for that? And is like low-cost satellites the best path to getting to a uh, base on the moon? Can you, can you explain that track to me? I think low-cost satellites help because there's a great deal of infrastructure we can build up on the moon prior to humans going there. I imagine, uh, I sort of picture, that we will have robots going there 
that are building a field of solar arrays so that we have a power system. They start converting lots of the regolith into oxygen, getting water from these cold traps on the poles and splitting it into hydrogen and oxygen for fuel and for breathing oxygen, having little homing beacons that enable other people to land more safely, clearing the rocks out of the way, you know, building up little shelters with bricks. And there's lots of lots of things that can be done so that essentially as what my as my boss puts it when a human lands there he, he or she is served a martini <laughs> you know the point being that there's a lot of infrastructure there prior to them getting there that'd be pretty fine <laughs> and so so i think yeah small sets play a role you ask a separate question about how we can advocate for it well i mean you know it is in these hard times hard to in if the, the, with the fiscal crisis hard to justify all these expenses and and um there's lots of reasons why I think it is justified that I could go and belabor. But so can you give me a 30 second argument for addressed to the average American who's maybe a bit behind in their credit card payments? They're still paying off their student loans. It looks like the national government is going to be racking up like two hundred thousand dollars of debt for every man, woman and child in America. Mm -hmm. um, why should we be dumping a bunch of money on, on space? That has nothing to do with the problems that we have here. Right. Well, I think the, the most important answer is that advancing these technologies is where we see economic growth. I mean, the majority of economic growth in the Western countries is is because of technical and scientific innovation. So if you if you put money into those places, you see uh, you, 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 you actually um, see tremendous return. And you look at the history of space exploration. If you ask somebody in the 60s to build a tiny computer, they would say, uh, okay, we'll try. If you say, we've got to go to the moon, man. And in order to go to the moon, we have to build a computer. And by the way, it has to fit into this tiny little volume. But otherwise, we're not going to get to the moon. I tell you, the latter will be the way in which that will force and then exactly what happened. That was, that was what forced the development of the microprocessor. So, okay. so, so, so the argument there is not even that, that space is, is a goal in and of itself, but that it's exciting enough that it'll drive a process mm -hmm. that will drive innovation. Yeah. And I, I think that's one way of justifying it, that, that it makes complete sense. Uh, what I care about much more root, in a root sense is actually uh, the survival of our species, which you know is very hard to put a, a value on. Um, but we have various th threats uh, to our existence, ranging, <laughs> ranging from threats that are external to us, like asteroids that yeah. uh, killed the dinosaurs, um, or supernova going off in the nearby vicinity, through to threats that we have produced for ourselves, whether that's climate change or having 30,000 nuclear war warheads around the world when we only need about 300 to wipe ourselves out. You know, pretty silly situations like that yeah. um, that we've created for ourselves. and. Um, it's not that we should give up on trying to solve those problems, but there's even risks even if we don't solve right. those problems right. to us. And so right. it is paramount that eventually we get our eggs out of one basket and into two. To, to make a backup. Absolutely. And it's not about giving up on Earth. That's right. a common misconception. Right. It's really Im, uh, Im, important regardless yeah. because we have, as I said, threats to us right, right, from right. outside. Right. But, but even with regard to the threats that we pose to inside, it, um, the, it turns out that space technology has a big role in many of them. 
For example, on climate change, it is really satellites uh, that found the hole in the ozone layer. It, satellites, da satellite data that underpins all the climate models that we have that understand how our, uh, our atmosphere is evolving. It's analogies with planets like Venus that first made us even think of the fact that a greenhouse mm -hmm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, gas uh, 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 problem it, it could arise i.e., you know, we looked there and we went, wow, that's a sort of runaway effect that's happened. Oh, shit, that could happen here. And that's when we started yeah. considering this to be yeah. an important issue and yeah. started monitoring it. So it, it's not irrelevant at all. We cannot understand. It's a bit like you, you can't understand your country before you've traveled to another country yeah. and reflected upon what yeah. the differences are. We cannot understand our planet without yeah. understanding other planets. And, we, and it's that big external picture in terms of all the... So that's a, a, a psychological level. Right and a scientific level, but then at a very direct level, we have the fact that um, all the data that underpins our models is mainly collected from satellites. Right. So, you know, climate change as one of the big problems that we face right. is, is fundamental to have satellites in order to understand that. Makes a lot of sense. So speaking of satellites and observing other planets, uh, it's certainly been all over the news lately that NASA put MESSENGER in orbit around Mercury. Now, I know you weren't working as part of that project, um, but what, what can you tell us about that project? I mean, it seems really interesting to me as a layperson that it took us this darn long to put yeah. something in orbit around Mercury. Like, why, why was Mercury so difficult? Um, actually, it uh, it is it is there's a it takes a lot of delta v to get to Mercury. And because, could you explain that? For so, so there's just the change of velocity that you have to impart onto the satellite in order to get it to where you want it to go. So, do you have to push it? How hard do you have to push it? Uh -huh. And in this case, it turns out you have to push it really hard to get to Mercury. Mercury, Why? Mercury is spinning. Uh, uh, around, it's orbiting around the sun much, much faster than we are because it's much closer to the sun. And so you kind of have to catch it up. And that's actually, it takes a lot of fuel to do that. So that's one thing. Uh, um, another thing is pretty harsh uh, environment um, in terms of the thermal situation because you're mu sure. that much closer to the sun. Sure. It really, you're baking hot. But it was mainly the trajectory reasons, the uh, the velocity reasons that has stopped people. I and mean, people have done swing bys before, so there's been several right. satellites that have uh, have swung by Mercury. Um, as to what instruments and so forth there are on the, the, the on Messenger, I I'm not, I don't even know what the instrument payload package is, but I'm sh I'm sure um, we will start seeing beautiful imagery. I, I hope they have a radar instrument so that we can see what the uh, the landscape looks like as well. Um, but uh, that's, uh, yeah, that you'd have to ask an expert. So uh, can, you, can you explain the catching up bit to me? Because, you know, they, they've got those exhibits where there's, there's a funnel going down. You drop in a penny, mm. right? And the penny cir circulates faster and faster and faster as it, as it gets towards the middle, right? So pre preservation of, uh, you know, a, a yes. momentum, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so I would think that um, simply jetting a little bit towards the sun, maybe, um, would cause you to yeah. get a faster and faster orbit, and that yeah. would help you uh, catch up with Mercury. So you wouldn't need a whole bunch of thrust. But yeah. that's very naive. That is, uh, you know, you know, your your picture's fine. Um, it, uh, it's just that it turns out the amount that you have to push it down. <laughs> uh. So I mean, you've got to just throw away energy. Yes, you're in a higher energy um, orbit where we are now than right. down there. You have more potential. Um, 
your total potential plus kinetic energy is higher out here than it is down there. So you have to get rid of energy as, from the perspective of the of your orbit around the sun. Right. But it's a shitload of energy you have to get rid of to get down to there. <laughs> Got it. I mean, it's just that, yes, it, you know, if you had some sort of drag component on your satellite, <laughs> yes. it, you know, the, as it was going around the yeah. sun, it was being dragged, just like yeah. those coins that right. have friction on this. That's right. It would slowly go towards Mercury's orbit, and by the time it got there, it would be going at the same velocity as Mercury. Yeah. However, <laughs> as it turns out, <laughs> that would take, well, there's just no friction in space, and so there's no natural decay process. Right. So you have to impart that energy to remove to remove some of its energy to get down to the Mercury orbit, and it turns out that's a lot of energy. Got it. Now, I know they did a whole lot of flybys of uh, e even the Earth uh, yeah. to, to get to that orbit. Why do that? I mean, that seems like a really circuitous path. Yes, it is a circuitous path. It is just that um, you essentially can use these things called gravity swing-by maneuvers where you um, extract energy from the planet um, and impart it on this spacecraft. Essentially, it sounds by, very voodoo magic. It's, no, there's nothing voodoo about it. I mean, it, 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 in fact, satellites do it all the time. Uh, but, but it, particularly for planetary missions, we we specialize in looking at trajectories that that um, mean that you don't have to put more fuel on the rocket, but you just by swinging around this planet, you gain some energy or lose some energy. And in this case. Um, um, I mean, that was very important, probably, for being able to, for it to be feasible at all to take uh, to use these things. So, in in actual fact, when the satellites do that, they do slow down the Earth ever so slightly in its orbit <laughs> around the Sun. So we can't do it that much. But that, th that of course, that, that limit is ridiculous. So, so no, I mean, it really, for practical purposes, doesn't make a difference. It's kind of like when you jump to, up on the Earth's surface, you're actually pushing the Earth. Yeah, down. just ever so slightly. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. In this case, though, because it, no, it's a bit more like you throw something so hard that it leaves the Earth. Right. You do the Earth does permanently go in the other direction <laughs> slightly. It's just that the amount is so low that. It it's largely, you know, from all intents and purposes, you can ignore it. Got it. Cool. Well, are there any uh, other exciting upcoming space missions that, that we should know about that maybe feature some of these low-cost satellites? Um, uh, not, the, not, not, not at the minute, no. Uh, but, the, I mean, and NASA's doing them all the time. Um, you'll see them in the news. Cool. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for dropping by and chatting with me today, William. No worries. All right. Cheers.